Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Charles Fain Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor, City Journal. And I'm Aaron Sabarium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And Aaron, how are you doing this week? I'm good. My girlfriend has been watching the show Succession. This is what's called a name drop. By the way. I... This is what's called a name drop. What, what's the name drop? Can you tell us that you have a girlfriend? Has that never been mentioned on the show? Okay. Um, <laughs> My girlfriend who lives in Canada, by the way. No. So Aaron's Canadian I've... friend has been watching Succession. Okay, yeah. My girlfriend has been watching Succession, and I just keep overhearing snippets of it. Succession, for those who don't know, is about a kind of Roger Ayers-type media tycoon who and, and his family who are all kind of jockeying to take over the, the media empire. When no, he, I know nothing away. about it except the Dasha from Red Scare was on it. And also, okay, I think there was an Adrian Vermeule episode. So I, that- I, I know nothing about that. That's hilarious. But, but, but that's just, this is just the basic premise from what I've gathered. But in any case, as someone who works in media, it's entertaining because A, just this show clearly has a ton of F-bombs. I keep overhearing streams of profanity and thinking, ah, that sounds like the Free Beacon office. I, I also uh, talk a lot more in the office than they used to. I mean, I mean, I mean, granted, much of the profanity comes from maybe me and a couple other people when we get when we get exercised about a given topic. But but no, sort of tongue in cheek. But also the other thing that's funny is that they they again, I don't know even what the plot is. I'm not watching it with her. I just hear it. She's in the middle of the season. But I, I hear them say things like, you know, what a libtard or something like that. And I'm like, ah, ah, brings me back to, you know, good old, makes me ma- makes me think of The Office. But in any case. You are uh, here now. <laughs> yeah, it brings yeah. brings me back to my place of employment. Right. It brings it brings me back, like when, I've, when I haven't been at The Office for 24 hours. It really brings me back up the to fuzzy feelings. Yes, yes, it gives me warm, warm fuzzy feelings. To to to, it reminds me of of working for a media company that has a sense of humor and whose employees, while studiously committed to facts and fair minded journalism, are not above occasionally, uh, shall we say, let's. Speaking candidly about certain personalities. Why don't, why don't we take that as an opportunity for a segue? Aaron, why don't you tell our listeners what we're talking about this week? Today, we are talking about the media and, and more the mainstream media than anything else. You know, not a whole lot to say in the introduction here. Conservatives have been complaining a long time about the New York Times and other institutions, yet all of the smarter ones still read it. We all kind of know that there's not really a comparable organization to the New York Times on the right. There's also a widespread and I think mostly correct perception that the media has gotten worse and more biased. There was the imbroglio over the Tom Cotton op-ed in 2020. We see other, we see sort of the woke convulsions of other newsrooms spilling into the public eye. Yet for all the talk about kind of the crisis of legitimacy of mainstream institutions and misinformation and how nobody trusts the media anymore. The reality is that the media is still pretty influential. The New York Times is still read by influential, powerful people. 
and it matters how the mainstream media functions. So that is what we're going to be talking about today. We'll introduce our guest in a moment, but Charles, thoughts on the media? Yeah, I mean, look, I have, you know, fairly conventional views on the topic for traditional conservative meeting class, um, which I remember is composed primarily of people with left-leaning dispositions. Humans have biases. We tend to perceive things in ways that satisfy those biases, and we often don't perceive our own perception. And so it is a little surprise to me that many allegedly mainstream publications have a left-wing bent. I'm not sure that's new. You know, my my, I, I, I think it was significant that that has become more apparent and there's been a sort of flowering of media diversity over the past 30 years. Do you think these institutions still matter? Yeah, probably. But look, I don't get a lot of my news from any one news source. I sort of try to get it as disintermediated as possible. You know, I, I mean, I think these are all pretty conventional takes. But, you know, my 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 bigger picture interest is just like, is there, you know, is 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 there any changing to the status quo? You know, is, is there is there anything that we can do about where where things are? Or is this sort of just going to be a thing that conservatives complain about for a long time? Aaron, what's what's your take? Yeah, what I'm interested in primarily is the sources of kind of epistemic authority and legitimacy why it is that the mainstream media has or historically has had clout that it does and then kind of the related question of how if it all can as you said there's a sort of flowering of media diversity how can how can those diverse alternative in many cases insurgent outlets replicate and cultivate that same kind of legitimacy i mean i think that's really the the question that looms large over all the talk about how nobody trusts the New York Times anymore, right? I mean, Barry Weiss's new publication is a good example where she, I mean, she's done incredible work and she's really broken stories that I think you arguably would have read in the New York Times maybe 20 years ago if it, and, and would still now if it were less biased. But there's still always this big question people talk about of, well, just how much can the free press compete with the New York Times? Does it really have, can, can a place that does not have the kind of inherited institutional prestige of the legacy media command the same role in the discourse? And I think the verdict is still out on it, frankly. But in any case, what I'm hoping we can get at with our guest is kind of not just what's gone wrong with the mainstream media, but how critics of the mainstream media can actually push it to be better or alternatively get their own kind of insurgent publications to be better. Because I think this is really the the big question in all of our kind of media debates. Yeah, so our, our, our guest, our guest is in fact one of your new colleagues. Welcome to Susanna Luthi. She covers the, the state of California for the Washington Free Beacon. She previously covered healthcare and tech for politicos. Susanna, welcome to Institutionalized. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. So, Susanna, you recently left Politico, one of the most kind of mainstream, supposedly nonpartisan, hyper-legitimate publications in America for the evil, right-wing, hyper-Zionist, very, very biased and evil Washington Free Beacon. Why would you do such a thing? It's so funny that you say that because you know, I it actually took it took some soul searching before I made the jump. You know, I I thought, you know, am I ready to go to, you know, a 
a partisan outlet from a, you know, allegedly nonpartisan outlet. And then once I made the jump, I was like, what took me so long? <laughs> I wish I had jumped two years ago. So it was a number of things. And actually looking back, I think the the movement within my soul started almost as soon as I landed in mainstream media, which was in the weeks before the 2016 election. I landed in D.C. kind of a self-proclaimed social justice warrior. I, you know, I had not I've been doing a lot of freelancing, mostly on the arts. I hadn't been a big political junkie since I was in college. I kind of had burned out over it during the Iraq war when I kind of lost my my conservative beliefs kind of over the Iraq war. And then after that, I just kind of was not paying a whole lot of attention. But, you know, I worked in the arts. I lived overseas quite a bit. So anyway, so I jumped in and started covering healthcare for a small outlet in DC. This was pre-Politico. And I cut my teeth covering Congress on the Obamacare repeal. And that kind of that kind of solidified my or it started me thinking like, okay, what what's going on here? So I had been on Obamacare when I was a poor 1099 freelancer in California. It was a terrible experience. I'd actually gotten very sick with malaria from a trip to Madagascar. And I came back and I had to get Obamacare, even though I was only living in the States kind of a couple months at a time at that at that point, because otherwise I'd have to pay the individual mandate tax. And anyway, I ended up like racking up a big bill for this malaria and none of it was covered under my Obamacare plan. I had to pay cash. It like pretty much broke my bank. And I was like, what? Okay, this law was clearly written by the insurance companies. Then, you know, fast forward, I am covering the Obamacare repeal and every advocate and policy expert, much less the industry, is telling me this is the greatest law that ever was written if it gets repealed, you know, the evil Republicans are going to destroy people's lives. But I remembered what it was like when I was on the ground and just an ordinary person trying to navigate it. So there's this cognitive dissonance, but I, you know, went wholeheartedly like, this must be right. You know, all of my smart, smarter DC reporter colleagues, you know, we're, we were basically like advocates for Obamacare at that point. And you probably all remember the coverage. And I was one of them. And it, you know, it got me on the map enough. So I was recruited to a bigger publication than ultimately Politico. But I always had this, you know, in the back of my mind, what's going on? And then as I kind of started navigating the DC world, I realized like the policy experts we talk to are funded by industry. No matter how, you know, bleeding hard the advocate is, they are also funded by industry. And we are all, those are the people we're talking to. And all of policy reporting across every discipline you bring up the field, like it's all kind of like that. And so there is no possible way for the media to present something that isn't kind of through that lens. No one was talking about how horrible the individual mandate was and said we were all defending it, like, oh, the law is going to go down without it. Then when the Republican states sued against Obamacare once the individual mandate tax was repealed and said, okay, yes, the law can't stand without it, then suddenly everyone says, oh, no, no, that didn't matter. You know, the law is, is perfect as it is in whatever form. 
So that's kind of what got me going and just kind of, it got, you know, kind of more and more apparent and all kind of my prior progressive beliefs that I come into DC holding kind of were clashing with my, you know, upbringing in a small town, the granddaughter of a businessman who had like fought his way for it. And just like, you know, and I, full disclosure, I went to Hillsdale College, which has become a very prominent in the, in the right wing world. So all kind of like those past ideas started clashing with everything. And within the newsroom, there is no room for that, any kind of dissent. And then I've been going on too long, but then the pandemic hit and that was when it kind of all went out the window and it kind of ruined I, I lost all dreams of going to the New York Times, for example, during the pandemic. So that's kind of ultimately what, what started my journey to the Free Beacon. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, I think there, there are a bunch of different components to that story. I want to, I want to zoom in on just one of them. So, you know, I, I, I think one of the challenges of reporting, I, I sort of shifted professionally to doing policy reporting, to doing policy. And I think a lot of what you see in the policy reporting space is that there's a great deal of dependence on experts that, you know, part of distinguishes journalists is that they, they don't have deep subject matter expertise. Or if they do, they accrue it very slowly. But I think honestly, a lot of people who do policy reporting don't ever accrue it. They don't do the work to accrue it. And so you're dependent on basically people telling you, on 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 on, on trusting the words of, of people with ostensible expertise. You 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 sort of lived this in the Obama debate, but I you know obviously obviously those experts can be drawn from certain perspectives. Is that is that you know is 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 that a tractable problem? One of the one of the questions that we sort of came into this with is like, is there anything you can do about the situation? Is that particular problem tractable? Is there a way to get around it? I think it depends on newsroom leadership at that point, because, you know, you also have to deal with a layer of editors and every editor is different. And some editors, and I've, I've had editors at Politico who are way more open to kind of dissident thought. And then others and others who, you know, they have their very specific biases. And so that doesn't come forward. I remember kind of after Obamacare was safe, some people who, you know, deep, deep democratic ties in the policy front, lobbyists, you know, I was kind of, it was, I was able to kind of be more critical to them about Obamacare. And I remember my last story at Politico on Politico's health team before I transferred to the California tech beat was kind of how, and it did not end up as, as hard hitting as I had hoped it would be, but I was able to speak with people on the democratic side who were like, oh yeah, the law doesn't work for a lot of people. And, but very few, I don't, I don't have to actually look back at the story. I don't know if any of them went on the record and they were very much like, we can't really be seen still like criticizing this law. Like you know, we're on the Democratic side. You, it's it's just verboten. And I would say that same perception was kind of in our newsroom too. And that, I, you know, it's, it's, it feel, it felt intractable. I, I was working, interestingly enough, before Politico, I was working for a business publication called Modern Healthcare. And they let me be, you know, I love my editor there. And I was actually able to be very, I, I was able to, write what I wanted. And it was interesting because it was a business publication, you know, it was not consumer focused. And we cover the industry kind of for the industry, but, you know, we were, 
I, I was allowed to be pretty blunt. And I remember one source telling me that half that half the lobbyists, industry lobbyists in town feared me and the other half respected me <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. And I was like, oh, that's good. Because yes, when you're when you're very blunt about about all those issues, you know, you're you're confronting you're confronting the you're speaking truth to power as as reporters like to say they do. But yes, I think it depends on the editors. But I don't see in like the big if if you're talking about the post, you're talking about the New York Times, you're talking about Politico, I don't see that changing anytime soon. Right. So so I mean you've been talking in part about external pressures, right? And this reliance on industry lobbyists, that's part of how the bias filters in. And that's kind of a structural thing, not necessarily all the fault of editors. But when you resigned from Politico, you wrote this very fiery resignation letter to your boss, which you, you before this started, you gave me permission to read excerpts of it. So just checking to make sure, can I, can I read a couple? Go for it. So you, you wrote in your resignation letter explaining why you were resigning that Politico's style guide pretty much dictates how we can frame any touchy topic. I ran into this problem in my second or third week in the newsroom as a national health reporter. I had written a small story about a court ruling on a Trump administration policy that gave legal immunity to hospitals and doctors if they didn't allow or perform gender transitional surgeries. The editing changed my precise lead to something about how the Trump administration was rolling back transgender rights a vague way to make sure readers knew the policy was bad, capital B. I started doing research into what we knew about these surgeries and hormone treatments so I could understand how to write about what seemed to me to be a potholed approach. Pretty soon, I found myself having to de-sex women's issues in my stories, even the most intimate things like pregnancy, childbirth, and abortion. Ultimately, we've been helping to force-feed incoherent critical gender theory to the mainstream. This newsroom policy was created without opportunity for debate or pushback. So talk a little bit about that and kind of the role of these style guides in framing stories. Yes, this is, I mean, this was, you know, my my number one complaint. And it was a very kind of faceless process. Around this time was when, you know, it kind of started, we, we were still writing, you know, pregnant women in stories. And then it was being changed to pregnant people to be more inclusive. Mm-hmm. And... It was, you know, the style guide updates were just just kind of happening. And as I said, it was it was surrounding, you know, culture, culture war topics. And we were taking kind of like the most kind of the woke line, if you will. And it it's hard to tell where it came from. because, And this is kind of my my bad because it made me uncomfortable I didn't, I didn't kind of go to the meetings that were called to, like there was a training on covering transgender issues and it was by a transgender lobby. So I knew that I would get really mad attending it. So I did not. So, you know, maybe I could have pushed back there, but I have a feeling that wouldn't have gone over too well. So it was, you know, a lot of them were following like the AP style guides, which you know, a lot of the updates were done by AP and then kind of filtered into kind of filtered into our newsroom. You know, there were after George, after George Floyd's death, there were, you know, there were instructions on how to how to describe it to be, you know, as more as most sensitive as possible. 
but even then I remember, I can't remember the exact words, but there was something about, you know, making sure that the protests were referred to as peaceful. And this was before the protests really took off. So when, remember that that CNN, I think it was a CNN Chiron that said, you yeah, know, fiery, but mostly peaceful protests. I thought, oh, well, they probably got the same instructions and they seem to be kind of media wide because I saw, you know, every outlet kind of adopting the same standards. And I mean, that, you know, speaking of speaking of external pressure, it was just like, OK, like this is this is kind of the line. The other thing was, as you recall, all of those protests happened during the the COVID lockdown when no one was supposed to want to associate with other people. But suddenly, I mean, I was living in D.C. at the time, suddenly like the most locked down city <laughs> in America, one of them was suddenly out in the streets. And, you know, it was a lot of, I remember walking down to the White House to see what what was going on. And I was walking with an African friend of mine and he's like, why is everyone here white? (laughs) (laughs) It was, it was kind of like, you know, I remember, yeah, I remember walking next to some, obviously like either recently graduated white college girls saying, Oh, my mom is gonna, you know, be scared of that I'm here. But anyway, like everyone was so was assembling and no one was calling it out. I will give credit. My my colleague Dan Diamond actually wrote a wrote wrote a story about that, saying like, why are public health experts who told us all to to lock down giving a free pass to these protests? But yes, it was very much the woke trends were followed in the style guide, and are followed in the style guide, and. Yes, there's no debate. And it does, you know, it it makes it, it normalizes this stuff in the news that everyone reads and consumes. I think Douglas Murray talks about this a lot in his book. I read his book and it was like a balm. So, so, so I feel like I should ask, you know, I think there's a, there's, there's a, there's a countervailing argument that says, yes, on certain high salience topics, there's been, there's been sort of an ideological infection in the media. My, my colleague, Zach Goldberg at MI has done a bunch of work on sort of the rising salience of race, sex, gender, transgender issues in in mainstream media coverage over the past 10 years now. But like outside of that space, there's a lot of good, you know, coverage being written all the time. Should we see these as sort of like problems focalized to very specific issues? Or is there a more general institutional problem that is only showing up in certain places? Or is the analysis that like they're doing good coverage in the places wrong? That's a good point. I'm trying to think, you know, the the big topics that I've covered, you know, I think on the smaller stories, that can be the case. But kind of like the top of mind for me was the pandemic, which to my mind, the media got totally wrong, continues to get wrong and has taken no accountability, a responsibility for. That was one where, you know, it was it was kind of very top heavy, top down commands of how we would cover cover the pandemic. And I saw the same coverage, you know, echoed across every mainstream publication. And I mean, climate change is energy reporting is another one kind of any any kind of discussion of, of weather kind of has to be attributed to the climate, it it seems more and more. And, you know, very little critical thinking about the green in this green industrial complex, as I call it, even though it's very destructive to the environment, but there's kind of zero critical questioning of it. And I mean, I don't, I'm not really 
focused on foreign policy coverage at this point, but it seems, you know, there it seems like the Iran nuclear deal, deal, for example, like got very little critical pushback. It does. the The bend is almost, almost always seems to be with the Democratic Party line. And once I kind of realized that, I saw it. I saw it in pretty much all the coverage I was reading. And so when I, you know, the New York Times has gotten a little difficult for me to read because you, <laughs> it's in the headlines. The biases in the headlines, Washington Post, the same. And I mean, that's not even going into the whole Russiagate stuff, which I have been I'm for a story this week. I kind of was going back to the Russiagate stuff because I remember at the time, you know, I was like, oh, I wasn't really, you know, I was focused. It was 2017. I was laser focused on Obamacare as a reporter. And I wasn't really following the Russiagate stuff because it seemed like a rabbit hole. But looking back, it was just kind of funny because the headlines started even then. It was, you know, the claims Democrats and Adam Schiff were making were very vague. I mean, all of them were very vague. It was like, oh, I've seen evidence of collusion, but I'm not going to say what that evidence was. And the headlines were all like evidence of collusion. And then at the same time, Trump was tweeting and people were trying to figure out how to handle Trump tweets. And so the headlines about Trump were like, Trump without evidence tweets this. <laughs> and it's like very, you know, obviously it was a judgment call. You know, the, the, the Intelligence Committee was given far more, the Democrats of the Intelligence Committee were given far more credibility than Trump. And that's fine. But it's just it was just funny looking back and seeing like the same kind of <laughs> the same kind of claims were given completely different treatment in the media. One one thing I want to ask about is so, so now that you've come to the, the Beacon, thank you very much for joining us. I mean, look, it, we all know the Beacon is more overtly partisan in many ways than Politico. Politico pretends that it's not a mouthpiece for the Democratic Party. You know, I wouldn't call us a mouthpiece for the Republican Party, but we obviously are generally publishing stories that are favorable to Republicans and negative for Democrats and not, you know, hiding those stories under a veneer of just balls and strikes objectivity. I mean, I think everyone kind of knows that in terms of the, the publication's overall ethos. I'm curious, though, do, do, even though we may be more overtly partisan, how do you... What do you think of our, the objectivity of our coverage on the actual issues framing aside? And are there places in which you think more overtly partisan outlets like the Beacon actually have functioned more as the kind of objective balls and strikes reporters that the mainstream media is supposed to be? Yes, it's an interesting question. And I... It's it surprised me to be honest. Like the mm. level of the level the standards that my editor has put on on my stories have been, and and also the level of fact checking is actually far superior to what I've encountered at any other outlet. Just just, but, just I just want to foreground it. So you're saying Free Beacon has higher standards and better fact checking than Politico. Well, we have. I mean, I'll, each of my stories is fact checked. Um, and, and at Politico, they weren't. No, we didn't have fact checkers. We fact checked our own stories. I mean, editors. 
Oh wow! Yeah. Oh, this is this is some this is some hot gossip. Mm, interesting. Yeah. I look I look forward I look forward to to throwing this in people's faces the next time we're hit with a quote unquote politic fact check. Yeah, but no, it's, it's anyway. Because like for each of my stories, I'll get the little email like even the, even little little throwaway lines. What's the source for this? Yeah, and that's right. Yeah, and I'm I haven't gotten that in any journalism job ever so it's new and it's great because it it takes some burden you know it's it's a little stressful when you're doing your own fact checking you're like ah yeah so anyway i really appreciate that but yes the that that's been a that's been a real a real highlight the other thing is because you know obviously because it's more overtly partisan it has yes it, it has it has an agenda but it's it's just I can't really just I can't really explain the difference. I'm trying to put it put it into words that make sense. I just feel a little more free to follow the facts where they mm-hmm. lead. Where they lead. I'm working on a story now that I know I couldn't have reported at at my last at Politico, and and it's because it's a very sensitive culture war topic. So you know I. Just if, if I had reported it, I think there would have been outcry and it, or it would have been altered to the point where, you know, I wouldn't have wanted to right. wanted to write about it. So that's and maybe, you know, that's just because my bias at this point, you know, is more is more in line with with free beacons. But, you know, fundamentally, it's, you know, when when the mainstream media kind of is all, you know, it's almost like a collective group think, right? So when you are outside the group think, it's very isolating. It's very difficult to find your voice within that. And you just have to navigate. You know, I I just found myself self-censoring beforehand of like which stories I was going to pursue. And then, you know, if I, you know, if I was going to get a little feisty and the stories, you know, how feisty was I going to get before I, you know, you know, rock the boat. So I don't feel like I have to rein myself in, you know, I feel if anything, you know, I, I can pursue the stories I'm really interested in pursuing. Yeah, I mean, and that's I, just a, you know, big freedom for me. You know, I think, and, and this alludes back to something I said in the introduction, there's sort of this phenomenon where for a period between, I don't know, the end of World War II and the early 1990s and the rise of the internet, News media is a is a sort of centralized monolith. You know, there there are a handful of major publications that have access to sort of limited resources of communication. This is why you know we dispute the fairness doctrine because because media is so concentrated. And in the '90s, you know, this starts to break down, particularly in the 2000s with the rise of the internet media, cable television, and you know, I, you know, I think you get this much more decentralized model where there are lots of different competitors and different ideological viewpoints, each providing a certain you know sort of accepting that people have like different perspectives and they will bring those to the reporting and saying, we're going to operate from our perspective. You're going to operate from your perspective. Truth will win out. This is more of a comment than a question, but I'll, I'll tie it into a question, which is, you know, do you, it, it, it seems like you've moved sort of, uh, the, 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 the media industry as a whole has sort of shifted towards this decentralized model. Some outlets admit it, some outlets don't, but what do you make of that shift? Is it, is it on net an improvement? Are there costs associated with it? You mean the fragmentation of, you know, all these independent outlets coming up? Yeah. 
I thought, you know, when you, in the introduction, when you were talking about how there's, there's no, you know, immediate heir apparent to the New York Times, I hadn't really thought about that. You know, is there, you know, is there, is it even possible with the, with the massive shift in how media works and, and the internet, is it even possible for a New York Times to rise? You know, is this the only reason it exists is because of its legacy and its history? You know, I live, you know, I live in a rural part of California. The people I'm surrounded, you know, most of the people I know are ranchers, farmers, small business owners, you know, construction workers, you know, no one really reads the New York Times here. Most people that I know get their, you know, a lot of people listen to podcasts, podcasts, podcasts are huge. And that's, that's, you know, usually because people are really busy. And so they can listen to podcasts while they're on the job or whatever, or they'll catch, you know, you know, headlines from social media. And that's just kind of it. And yeah, it's interesting. I mean, very few people, my parents get the Wall Street Journal, but they're kind of the only people I know who <laughs> subscribe to like a big legacy publication. So I think that's part of the, you know, I think it's, I think it is part of the, you know, there is no kind of national conversation piece, you know, when people used to watch Dan Rather and they'd watch the Sunday morning shows. I don't really know anyone who does that anymore. So the net positive is that, you know, there is no, I, I think there's no kind of, I don't know what's the word. Influence is the wrong word. There's no like one single influential outlet that that speaks to everyone. You know, everyone kind mm -hmm. of can gather their bits and pieces. And, but the the downside is that media like increasingly speaks to itself and its adherence. I do think that that's, you know, I, I really saw the disconnect between policy reporters in Washington, you know, very, you know, most graduate from college, go straight into policy reporting, don't have any real world experience. I do think that's kind of what led to my wanting to break away is because, you know, I hadn't moved to DC out of college. I didn't get there until my mid thirties. You know, I had a lot of other views and a lot of experiences that kind of made up my worldview that didn't fit inside the box of policy reporting. And so it's difficult when people are writing about the laws that will affect everyone. They're not, they're writing about them from the lobbyist and expert point of view and not the on the ground view. You know, right now, the people I know are the ones who are like doing all the work, like, you know, the ranchers who are raising the cows and having to deal with, you know, cattle cattle prices and beef prices and inflation and fuel prices and you know the 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 push towards green energy which is you know making financial hardships the people who you know like one of our good friends the sewage systems you know like all of these all of the the policies that are put in place there's just a disconnect between between views of people who've never kind of experienced the real world and those who do. And so, yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that, but there, there's just a, there's a huge disconnect. And I, I don't know if there is like a single media source that can, that can rise up in this environment. Let me ask, I mean, so, so, so people where you live maybe don't read the New York times, but obviously a lot of people, a lot of influential people do. I mean, 
why do you think people trust the New York Times? The, the, uh, the because it's always been there. I mean, I mean, yeah. I don't really. Yeah. Yeah, it's always been there, and it's. I mean, this is also a difference between the West and the East Coast. So, so on the West Coast, like we do have an inferiority complex about the East Coast. When I lived in LA, I remember it was just kind of like a a sign that of culture that you got the the Sunday New York Times, you know, and you read the New York Times. On the East Coast, it's it's definitely more of an institution, and it's kind of it's been part of people's daily lives for so long. I really liked when I lived in DC, I liked getting the Washington Post, like the paper version, because I, I got so much more out of it than the web version, because I got like neighborhood news um, and local news. When I subscribed to the, you know, the paper New York Times when I lived in LA, you know, the arts coverage, I, I pay, basically got it for like the arts coverage and everything else. Its scope is so huge. I mean, they can, they can, put report teams of reporters on huge investigative pieces that take, you know, months and months to do. And that's something that, you know, none of these kind of in, in a, like small startup organizations can really afford to do. They have reporters all over the world. They have eyes and ears everywhere. They have correspondents all over the country. All of that, all of that, you know, builds an institution that, you know, a lot of people, mm -hmm. a lot of people rely on, and they can cover things that smaller outlets can't cover. And they do, they pick up a lot of, you know, they do pick up a lot of local stories, you know, that local reporters will break first and then they'll, they'll blow it out. So, you know, that's, that's their, that's their, their role as the paper record. So, so, you know, I think, I think we want to let's let, talk, talk just a little bit sort of solutions, like we're determined before we move to closing thoughts. So, you know, I, I think there's some argument, at least in the short term, that there's been some internal efforts at change, course correction, CNN allegedly pivoting to the center, New Times hiring John McWhorter, the Washington Post op-ed page seems to be looking for conservatives. How optimistic are you about the media's ability to self-correct, if not grand historical trends, and certainly recent trends, the, the trend of the past five years, for example? Well, I can only speak to my experience. And I think the only I think the only way, I don't think hiring conservatives for op-ed pages is going to change anything. I think it's I think it's more, you know, hiring reporters of different viewpoints and different backgrounds. And that I don't know, you know, is it self-selective? You know, the the young reporters who come into newsrooms, from my experience, like the young people coming into news are all, you know, very, very liberal. And that's, that kind of helps <laughs> solidify a very liberal newsroom. And it's kind of the younger people who are more activists and want to drive newsrooms more left. So unless, you know, I at the end of my time in Politico, I didn't know if there were any colleagues who felt the way I did. You know, it was very, it was very lonely in terms of like, like, can I, can I say my thoughts? And, and, you know, it wasn't that I didn't think my thoughts would get me in trouble with my colleagues. It was just like, would they, like they, I just knew they wouldn't agree with me, you know? And 
that's, you know, and, and that's, it's, it's, it's the many reporters and the many different voices that make up, make up the coverage. So if it's, if it's all a kind of a uniform newsroom of on the ground reporters and how they view the world and editors the same way, you know, how, how is there going to be a course correction? I just don't see it. And you, what, what was it? Whenever there are leaks of kind of the, you know, older reporters in these rooms complaining about like the young woke. <laughs> woke. There's like Matthew Rosenberg at the New York Times. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. About the January 6th stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and then Barry Weiss's experience. Yeah. So, you know, how for, do you. For those who don't know, for the, for just for those who don't know, there's this guy at the New York Times who was caught on tape basically saying that his younger colleagues claiming to be traumatized by January 6th were just full of shit and speaking very candidly about snowflakes that he has to deal with. It was quite entertaining. We, in fact, it was so entertaining that we awarded Matthew Rosenberg a Washington Free Deacon Man of the Year Award for his candid criticism of his woke colleagues. It was great. Yes. Yes. So, I mean, that's it. It's like there, there is a huge generational divide between kind of like the old school the young and the young people and it's it's fascinating i was on a press conference last week when gavin newsom rolled out his budget and you know one reporter questioned cuts to california's very bloated agencies and like seemed upset by the proposed cuts to these agencies and i was like since when are reporters like all about the bureaucracy <laughs> you know it's just you know it's just that view is so alien to me, you know, why, why are we defending? And that happened during the Trump years, I think, because Trump was attacking the agencies, all of a sudden, the agencies became, you know, look at the FBI, like, all of a sudden, the FBI were the good guys, CIA were the good guys, you know, that wasn't the case 60 years ago. So in terms of in terms of fixing, I you know, I, I thought that maybe I could make a difference within the newsroom, but it just, it just got too, it just got too difficult personally. I was, I was frustrated with myself thinking I wasn't brave enough half the time. I was, I was lonely. I just felt like, you know, it didn't, it didn't, I didn't belong there anymore. Yeah. I mean, I think to me that this sort of leaves the question, I guess we will want to move to closing thoughts in a minute, but I'll just sort of maybe prompt to on one last thing, which is, you know, we've been dancing around this, but so, so you, earlier you said that the beacon was more, you know, even though, yes, it's more overtly partisan, it's been very liberating. I mean, I guess the question is how, how do we make publications like the beacon that are more freeing, how do we get them closer to having the impact of the New York Times? I, I, I agree with you that there's just some hard constraints because we, you know, the New York Times has the history of the New York Times and no one can replicate that. And that's just kind of a, a permanent, a permanent handicap. But, you know, I, and I, I suppose what I really have in mind is that put, put the beacon aside, but a lot of right-wing media frankly, does not seem to be any better than the New York Times. And if anything, seems to be even more biased in the other direction. You know, we, I don't need to name names, but I think we all know a lot of the publications and, and personas that I'm talking about. So, you know, 
how do you think about kind of efforts to institutionalize a more sane, compelling alternative to the mainstream media and to kind of build up the institution, the, the, the sort of emergent, insurgent institutions that are there? Well, the problem is, I mean, the beacon itself says that it writes the stories that the powerful are afraid of. So, you know, it's it's hard to it's it's hard to, you know, totally become institutionalized when you are writing those stories that people are scared of. But I do see room, you know, I do see room in in the fragmentation of the media, in all the people who are who are listening to podcasts instead of reading the New York Times. I see room for, you know, building a real audience among people who've been left behind by the New York Times. And I definitely saw this when I was pitching, you know, the California beat. It's a deep blue state. The institutional media here is, you know, ultimately, you know, they'll they'll nitpick here and there about, you know, various abuses of power. But ultimately, they they support the progressive policies of the state and its large cities. And there's very little interest in like, you know, really tackling some of the really like, you know, deep problems in those progressive policies. So I do see, so, you know, a lot of Californians I know who are conservative just Mm -hmm. kind of like, they don't, they don't read anything. Um, Mm -hmm. So I do see, I do see room for all those disaffected people, whether it will take, I mean, you, you, you've written so much about the, the capture of institutions. So when institutions themselves are all captured, you know, how is how is kind of a dissonant voice going to become that? But I would argue, I mean, that's the whole point of a supposedly independent and free press is to be dissident. Like, are you supposed to be like, is is the New York Times' institutionalization a good thing? You know, does that make it just what, the fourth estate, you know, the, mm-hmm. the other branch of the government? The cathedral, the cathedral, the cathedral, the mouthpiece of the government. Like, do you do you want that? I thought, you know, my my first newspaper experience. Well, no, my second newspaper experience. I was only there for a few months, but it was with the Cambodia Daily in Phnom Penh, and it was the gadfly. The government was always trying to shut it down, but it was beloved by the people. I was in D.C. This was when I first moved there. I had to grab a taxi. And my taxi driver had the little Cambodian flag, which I had kept in my own car since I left Cambodia in 2006. And I was like, oh, you're from Cambodia. I worked at the Cambodia Daily. And he was like, oh, the Cambodia Daily, you know, it had been shut down recently by the dictator. And and he talked about how that's how he learned English. And that's how he, you know, knew that there was life outside outside the government. And that's ultimately what the press is supposed to be. And I don't, you know, so I don't see the Free Beacons, you know, the fact that it's not the New York Times, I don't see that as a downside. The key is to give voice for the people who feel kind of right. forgotten and left behind. Why don't we why don't we take this up to for closing thoughts, which I'll also sort of insert myself first, which say, you know, I yeah, I mean they sort of kind of the conversation with, with the view that I went in with, which is like, you know, the sort of the sort of mono discourse of the of the mid-20th century is gone it's not going to come back it was probably bad when it existed the reality is that you know there, 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 there will be 
some variation in, you know, most most media outlets with some exceptions will agree on a lot of but not all the facts and they'll agree on a lot of but not all of the interpretation. And then the sort of variation along the lines of what you can plausibly disagree about will fall along ideological lines. But I think that's probably good for the dissemination of knowledge. Like many stories are ambiguous. It's you 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 can try to sort of ask one set of people to have to hold all perspectives in their heads, but they're gonna fail at it. It's just better to have, I think, uh, you know, a sister of many decentralized Competing viewpoints. That's ultimately the more sort of market oriented part. So you know, I'm I'm not optimistic about sort of fixing the situation, American newsroom, America's newsroom, but I am optimistic about the diversity. You know, the letting a thousand flowers bloom and letting that solve the problem. Aaron, what's what's your takeaway from the conversation? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm honestly torn on this. I, I I I to a large extent agree that the the best hope we have now is sort of the diversity of media outlets, and just hope that reading a broad cross-section of those can can get you pretty close to the truth. I will say what worries me about that that argument, the kind of market place of ideas argument, is that most people don't read enough diverse news to plausibly sort... No, right, I mean, look, you're, you're, Charles is making a face, and I'm like I, I, shrugging his shoulders like, who cares? And And I guess I would say this, you know, this is going to sound a little maybe authoritarian of me, but the reality is centralized media control, the kind of centralized control of the epistemic landscape that existed under mid-century conditions was coercive in many ways, did stultify dissent, and you could argue in, in, in certain respects was worse than what we have now. But I think the main advantage it had was precisely that it there was some degree of epistemic and social control. And at a certain point, you know, too much diversity of views just becomes very hard to govern and there's virtues to consensus. So, you know, I, I guess the, I'm, I'm genuinely torn on the trade-off here. The only other thing I'll say is one thing I've noticed about the beacon, and this goes to Susanna's point about the fact-checking is it is possible for conservative outlets, because they know that they're insurgents, for that to actually, I think, give them, motivate them to fact check and be rigorous in a way it may not always motivate the mainstream press. I think in theory, that actually can happen. And there are certain things where we would be more careful with facts than Politico would. To me, the, the bigger obstacle is just, it's a scale thing, right? Like we do have fact checkers and we care about it, but we don't have as many people as the New York Times. And, you know, no matter what, I, I think the reality is for the staff of 20, 30 people, you know, you can only have so many people fact checking at any one time. And to me, that is sort of the the bigger challenge is just getting enough concentrate, you know, getting enough people in one place for these network effects to set in where you can really do the kind of wide-ranging coverage of the New York Times. I just, I've not seen a conservative publication do that. And I'm skeptical it can be done. And to go back to Charles's point, just really quickly in closing, I mean, I think that's sort of the issue with the market place of ideas metaphor. Yes, like there are all these other media outlets blooming, but the reality is that some of those media outlets have just built-in advantages and are much bigger and you do have to wonder how that's going to affect how it all plays out in the market. So yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of ambivalent. Sometimes I'm more optimistic 
Other days, I'm more pessimistic and think, oh, yeah, you know, we just live in the New York Times occupied government, but it varies. Why don't we leave it there and do some recommendations? Aaron, do you have a recommendation for us? <laughs> yeah, well, so, 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 so despite my ambivalence, I'll, I'll, I'll recommend a very unambivalent piece by Richard Hanania that just provoked everybody on Twitter the other week called Why the Media is Honest and Good, in which he basically offers a full-throated defense of the media, says that most of the conservative critiques of it, they're not all, are overstated. And more or less says that for all its faults, we are much, much, much better off with the New York Times and Washington Post than without them. I've got to say, I think he makes a pretty strong case against kind of conservative, sort of dumb conservative griping about the media. It's not to say his piece is flawless, but if you want to get kind of the steel man version of the, actually the media is basically good take, he does a pretty good job with it. Fair enough. Charles. Friend of the story, which after I listened to this episode, I'm very upset about it. Yeah, my recommendation is a little bit related and also a little bit unrelated. I'm just finishing, I don't think I recommend this, but I'm just finishing in the band played on Randy Schultz's 1987 history, uh, journalistic history of the AIDS crisis. It's sort of like the classic work on the early AIDS crisis. It was very informative. I learned a huge amount. It's also a great work of writing. It's very digestible. It's not really technical at all. Schultz is a very talented journalist. So I recommend it to all of our listeners. I think you'll learn a huge amount too. Susanna, do you have a recommendation for our listeners from, from your own work or from others? This is a little old at this point, but if you have not listened, just YouTube it, the debate, Matt Taibbi and Douglas Murray on this very topic in Canada. I forget which, it was some club in Canada sponsored the debate and they were against, they were debating. I have a, I have a newborn, so I've got a mom brain. A New York Times writer and a very prominent New Yorker writer who I know, I know but I can't remember his name. <laughs> anyway, yes, that, that debate is very good. Recommend it. It's Malcolm Gladwell, Michelle Goldberg. Yes, yes. Thank you. Yeah, it's okay. Good. Well, thank you, Susanna, so much for joining us on Institutionalized. Thank you. Thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, compliments, concerns, breaking news tips, last you should send to Aaron, everything else you should send to me and Aaron on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sibarium. I think that's about all the time we have for this episode. So until next time, I'm Charles Fane Lehman. I'm Aaron Sibarium. You've been listening to Institutionalized. We hope you'll join us again soon. <laughs> <laughs>